Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. My name is Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from places all around the globe, like Ashburn, Virginia, Traverse City, Michigan, Hawthorne, California, Anchorage, Alaska, and Western Java, Vienna, Madrid, and Dublin. Thanks for joining me, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. We all know about algorithms these days, right? You've got to massage the algorithm. Okay, so today I've got the story of a vehicle that was crude, slow, noisy, and uncomfortable. Sounds like a terrible idea, right? In fact, even the men who created it saw it as just a temporary solution to their problems. And yet it's one of the greatest success stories in automotive history. They called it the Land Rover, and it became an accidental icon. That's coming up next. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Now, maybe you can't afford that full-size E30 M3 or that rare 71 Nissan Skyline GTR. And that's probably okay, because your garage is already chock full of other projects, and you've been turning so many wrenches, your knuckles look like they belong to a prize fighter. The last thing you need to do is muck about with another old car. And that's where Model Citizen Diecast comes in. They sell collector-grade scale model cars from manufacturers like Amalgam, Auto Art, Mini Champs, and others. They stock 143rd scale and 118th scale offerings. From streetcars to race machines, from pre-war classics to brand spanking new cars, Model Citizen Diecast has something for just about every interest and price range. Shop their online catalog at ModelCitizenDieCast.com or check out their Instagram page at Model Citizen Diecast. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. You know, romance is a funny thing. Over the last 20 years or so, maybe more, the Land Rover Defender became one of the hallmark symbols of rugged adventure in our collective automotive consciousness. Social media and slick magazine spreads have put the Defender in a place of reverence. I mean, it's always been a thing to admire. It really has earned its stripes. But how many of us would have felt this sort of affection in the real world that the Land Rover has inhabited for the last seven decades? Think about it. Would you trade places with a Welsh coal miner, or a lineman for British Telecom, or a logger in the Pacific Northwest, or with Fred Dibna, the most famous steeplejack in Britain, just to drive a Land Rover in the environment it was built to conquer? By the way, look up Fred Dibna on YouTube tonight. I promise you're in for a treat. So would you trade places with those people in their Land Rovers? Probably not. Those are hard, thankless jobs that pay very little and they would leave your body broken and worn out by the age of 55. It's a funny thing, romance. It only grows out of distance from stark reality and the passage of time, and it's paid for by dirty sweat and toil, and oftentimes by confronting danger in a world that few of us ever really see firsthand. Think about your own daily life. How much danger do you really face? So those Land Rover Defenders you see on the road are not just the sum of their parts. They represent millions of hours of unsentimental labor in miserable, far-flung locations and many dusty, muddy, hot, and sticky miles under their wheels. And it all started at the end of the most nightmarish conflict of the 20th century. Throughout the world, throngs of people hailed the end of the war in Europe. It is five years and more since Hitler marched into Poland. Years full of suffering and death and sacrifice. 
Now the war against Germany is won. A grateful nation gives thanks for victory. Hundreds of thousands crowd into American churches to give thanks to God. May 8, 1945. Victory in Europe. The German high command surrenders to Allied forces. All over the West, in Times Square, Piccadilly Circus, in the cafes of Paris, crowds of war-weary people celebrate victory over Nazi tyranny. But Western Europe has been shattered by five years of occupation and the long slog to push the Nazis out. Only Great Britain had escaped invasion, but now its people would have to recover from the feverish focus of resisting Hitler's conquest. Britain would now have to return to a peacetime footing, putting everyone back to work and rebuilding the economy. But the Second World War had put Britain deeply in debt, and long before the war, it had been highly dependent on imported raw materials. The British government concluded that recovery depended on selling British goods to foreign customers. Export. The British people had precious little income to spend on goods themselves. And the products that were most desirable at home would be more valuable if they were instead shipped abroad. And so the mandate became export or die. This was not a new concept for this island nation, but now it was an imperative. It was a dire situation. And in fact, official government policies meant rationing would drag on into the 1950s. And Britain's manufacturers had their work cut out for them. One of those firms was the Rover Company of Warwickshire in the English Midlands, the manufacturing heart of England for centuries. The Rover Company dates from the 1880s. Their first commercial success was the Rover Safety Bicycle. And I have to take a little tangent here. They called it the Safety Bicycle because... Before that, the penny-farthing bicycle was the standard. That's the type of bicycle with a giant front wheel and a tiny rear wheel. We've all seen it. The name came from the fact that the English penny was a fairly large coin, while the farthing was quite small. The pedals on the penny-farthing were a direct drive to the enormous front wheel, and it was a dangerous contraption because if you fell off, it was a long way down. So the bicycle design that we know today with its equal size wheels and triangulated frame was a big improvement over the penny farthing. And now you know why it was originally known as the safety bicycle. By the way, this was not proprietary to Rover. Many bikes were referred to as safety bikes simply for marketing purposes. So back to the Rover company. Eventually they moved from bicycles into motorcycles and finally into cars. Rover built a solid middle-class automobile through the 1920s and managed to weather the Depression, and by the 1930s, the company began to move up market. You could say that the Rover car was the British Buick, high build quality and engineering with a dash of luxury. Two men were largely responsible for that development, a pair of brothers, Spencer and Morris Wilkes. Spencer managed the works, and Morris became chief engineer. During the late 30s, Rover continued to build outstanding cars. And as the winds of war began to blow, Morris was working on early gas turbine jet engine development with a guy named Frank Whittle, another pioneer of his time who was actually far ahead of American jet engine development. When the war came, Rover built aircraft and tank engines, and their factories, of course, were under constant threat of bombardment. But England endured. 
And that brings us to 1945. The peace was won, but how would Britain get back on her feet? It put the Rover Company in a difficult position, since they'd been aimed solidly at the middle of the market. The very rich would still have their Rolls Royces, and the entry-level customer, even though he was thin on the ground, would probably buy an Austin. But Rover was in the middle, and they had very little export market. How would the company survive? The Wilkes brothers certainly contemplated this problem, even before the war had ended. I'll be right back with more Horsepower Heritage. Don't go away. Hi, this is Maurice Merrick. How would you like to win a custom 1966 Triumph Bonneville 650? Union Motorcycle Classics is known for building meticulously crafted custom vintage motorcycles. And now they're raffling this 66 Bonneville to benefit the most vulnerable among us. All proceeds will go to Reacts Ministries in Southeast Asia. This bike is a classic British twin loaded with one-of-a-kind details, and it can be yours. Reacts strives to meet the specific needs of their children's homes and children's centers to foster and promote self-sustainability. Their goal is to provide food, shelter, and education to children who are otherwise unable to afford these basic needs. The entry deadline is October 7th, 2020 at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Go to unionmotorcycle.com to enter. That's unionmotorcycle.com. See official rules on their website. You can also visit reactsministries.org to find out more about their valuable work. Because change in the world starts with you. And now back to Horsepower Heritage. Rover car production resumed with essentially pre-war designs. Like many manufacturers, they needed a stopgap vehicle something that could be put in production quickly with limited availability of raw materials. And it nagged at the Wilkes brothers. And then in the summer of 1947, Morris Wilkes was on holiday at his farm on the Isle of Anglesey in Wales. No doubt he'd thought about what sort of goods the world needed to rebuild itself. Morris had an American jeep on his farm since many had been left behind after the war. The story goes that his brother Spencer asked him what he'd do when the jeep wore out. He replied that he'd have to find another Jeep because there was nothing else like it. That conversation must have gotten Morris Wilkes thinking. What British farmers and tradesmen needed was the same thing that any workaday man would need anywhere on the globe. A tough, go-anywhere tool like the Jeep. And the commercial possibilities almost certainly swirled in his head. So one day, as he and Brother Spencer sat on the beach, they scratched a drawing of a new car in the sand. Not long after, Morris's Jeep was taken to the Rover Works at Solly Hall. And soon, a team was hard at work in a small building, tearing the Jeep down to its chassis. They installed an engine and gearbox from a Rover car and mated it to the Jeep transfer case and axles. The steering wheel of this crude prototype was at the center of the vehicle because they thought it would simplify export to both right- and left-hand drive countries. A body was quickly fashioned, partly in plywood, but mostly in aluminum. The production version would be all aluminum, because steel would have to be imported at great expense. But surplus aluminum was available from the aircraft industry. Besides the utility of four-wheel drive, the Rover design team incorporated a power takeoff feature to allow for the attachment of all kinds of machinery that tradesmen would demand, from portable sawmills to welders. That versatility would mean a lot of value for tradesmen who could put the car to work while they made their payments. The center steering prototype was tested and given the green light, 
and by the winter of 1948, Rover's engineering team was nailing down a clean sheet design. They retained the 80-inch wheelbase of the Jeep, but the steel chassis was fully boxed and welded, and all of the running gear was purpose-built. By the spring, a number of pre-production vehicles were ready and undergoing testing, and the new car was launched in late April at the Amsterdam Motor Show. It was called the Land Rover, and it generated great interest almost immediately. Rover planned to build 50 Land Rovers per week for five years, exporting three-quarters of them. And they figured that after five years, their standard car production would be back to normal with new designs. Also remember that from 1939 to 1945, industrial production had been almost entirely diverted to the war effort, and nearly everyone had had to make do with the vehicles they already owned. And just months after VE Day, Winston Churchill's conservative government was swept out of office, and a new labor government under Prime Minister Clement Attlee imposed what amounted to a centrally planned economy. Strict rationing of many goods remained in effect. Bacon, bread, soap, clothing. But even under austerity, the new Land Rover became very successful in Great Britain and even presented a way around certain restrictions. For example, in 1948, Parliament passed the Motor Spirits Regulation Act. Petrol was rationed, and a red dye was added to some petrol, which was restricted to commercial use. But if you were a farmer or a tradesman, you could buy a Land Rover, qualify for the red petrol, and still use your vehicle for whatever purpose you saw fit. For many early home market customers, the Land Rover was both a tractor and the family car, plowing fields in the morning and driving down to the village for a pint in the afternoon. In fact, no one had foreseen just how successful the Land Rover would be. Production went from just over 3,000 in the first year to 16,000 in 1950. Remember, Rover had planned to build 50 Land Rovers per week for five years, which works out to only 13,000 total. By the mid-1950s, Land Rovers were available in several lengths and configurations, including hardtop models and station wagons. And contracts from military forces and civil engineering firms had poured in from all over the globe. Over 100 Land Rovers had been shipped to Australia as complete knockdown kits. And once assembled, they formed the fleet of vehicles that helped build the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Project the largest engineering project ever in that country. Explorers, oil companies, the United Nations, and even Queen Elizabeth herself were all driving Land Rovers. The reputation of the Land Rover was made by people both ordinary and legendary. In 1950, an Australian-born writer named Barbara Toy made a bet in a London pub that she would drive to the Middle East and back. Before long, she set out alone in a second-hand 80-inch Land Rover, christening the car Pollyanna. The little car took her from Gibraltar to Baghdad. Toy made at least seven long-range expeditions in Land Rovers over the next 40 years. Africa, Australia, Asia... North America, and mostly the deserts of the world. 
and mostly in Pollyanna. Although the Rover Company convinced her to trade up to a newer Series 2 model in around 1960, Toy regretted that move and felt that Pollyanna had been much more reliable. Winston Churchill was given a new 86-inch Land Rover for his 80th birthday in 1954. Its passenger compartment was modified to accommodate his portly frame. A group of college men from Oxford and Cambridge drove a pair of Land Rovers from London to Singapore and back in 1955. They filmed the trip for the BBC and brought images of a quickly vanishing world into the living rooms of Britain. Photographer George Roger, who had captured the horrors of the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in 1945, drove his Land Rover station wagon across the Atlas Mountains into Algeria and through the sands of the Sahara Desert on assignment for National Geographic magazine in 1957. And that same year, Marilyn Monroe was photographed behind the wheel of a Land Rover on a beach in the Hamptons. And that's about as glamorous as a Land Rover ever got. Jane Goodall later used Land Rovers in her research and conservation work with gorillas in Africa. And George Adamson used Land Rovers in his lion rescue work in Kenya, which was made famous in the 1966 film Born Free. It was estimated that at one time in the developing world, a Land Rover was the first motor vehicle most native peoples had ever seen. The Rover Company was keenly aware that the vehicles must be seen doing what they were meant to do, and they sponsored many expeditions and charities in remote areas. And luckily, the cars were up to the job. The unexpected success provided Rover a great deal of feedback from its customers in the field, and it was clear they wanted more versatility and refinements. By 1957, a comprehensive redesign was underway. The Rover Company's first stylist, David Bache, was given the job of creating bodywork that could be fitted to both 88-inch and 109-inch wheelbase chassis, the two platforms that the company had decided on, and those could be configured in soft-top, full-hard-top, and pickup cab versions. And for many of these vehicles, those options could be interchangeable. Throughout Land Rover's history, though, the essential simplicity remained. At first, it was a necessary function of building a stopgap product in a short time. Later, that simplicity was unavoidable because research and development budgets were kept small and austerity measures still affected every corner of British industry. And with very little competition, at least until the early 1960s, there was really no financial incentive to take risks with a proven product, even if it was underpowered, noisy, and 20 years behind the rest of the automotive industry. People were buying it. These were boardroom-level decisions, of course, and they forced Land Rover engineers to develop sturdy, simple components and systems that held up to abuse. And when they did fail, they could be easily repaired in the middle of nowhere with a few basic tools. In 1976, the millionth Land Rover rolled off the assembly line at Solly Hull. The Wilkes brothers had both passed on. First, Morris in 1963, and then Spencer in 1971. But the basic utilitarian Land Rover, with its tough underpinnings and boxy aluminum sheet metal, surpassed everyone's expectations. 
and production lasted until 2016. And just as the last of the breed rolled off the assembly line, the first production Land Rover, chassis number 860-001, re-emerged after 47 years off the road. It was worn and battered, but still intact, sitting in a crumbling barn in the north of England. The little car was rescued and meticulously reconstructed, preserving as much of the original vehicle as possible. There are few vehicles, in fact, that have been as enduring or as well-loved as the Land Rover, regardless of social class. It was one of the last low-tech driving experiences available in a new car. But all good things come to an end. So if you've got an old Land Rover, hold on to it and pass it down to your children. It should last them at least until 2048. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, click that five-star rating and don't forget to leave me a review. That'll help me reach more gearheads like you. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.